and welcome to Global Digital Futures Podcast, brought to you by the SOAS Coding Club. I'm your host, Chipoma Pondera, and you're listening to SOAS Radio. This week, we welcome Dunia Malhuli to speak about digital strategies for counter-narratives. Dr. Malhuli is lecturing at SOAS Center for Global Media and Communication. She conducted her PhD research at the University of Glasgow in partnership with the American University in Cairo and worked as a postdoctoral researcher at King's College London as part of the European consortium Vox Poll. Her research interests are in the area of media studies and political communication, and her work focuses on the interplay between state and non-state actors, communication strategies in post-2011 North Africa. She is about to publish an ethnography of research on violent political extremism, which is designed as a contribution to the current academic debates in critical terrorism studies. Hello, Dunia. Hello. (laughs) Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. So can you just give us a little bit of background on what are some of the more recent issues or fears that have sparked this need for counter-narrative strategies? Yes, of course. So counter-narratives, for those who are not actually familiar with the term, has been developed as a, a particular field of practice within policies on countering violent extremism in general. An increasing uh, number of think tanks are, are becoming involved in research and activities related to countering violent extremism. This has been the case since 9-11 actually happened and I think that scholars like Kudnani really sort of describe how this industry has been prominent in his book, The Muslims Are Coming. And so I think that counter-narratives is sort of a subfield of the research and policy and practice in countering extremism that has been developed as a result of the debate on online propaganda. So uh, it's really sort of how can policymakers, practitioners and civil society, as well as governments in general, respond to the problem of uh, extremist propaganda in general. So um, there's been a lot of focus on jihadi propaganda, but of course this should also involve questions relating to far-right nationalists and white supremacists and so on. There's a lot to say about sort of counter-narratives. So uh, on the one hand, there has been initiatives that were funded by governments, which were not that successful precisely because in a way it was funded by the government and so this has uh, delegitimized those initiatives and in a sense they were not that popular and they were not that successful in terms of reaching the targeted audience. So that included campaigns that were designed to raise awareness about sort of extremist uh, propaganda online, inform the public, inform different forms of target audiences, so parents, vulnerable groups such as the youth and so on. And of course like in different countries because you know countries have been tackling this issue in different ways depending on the context and so on. So it's very hard to sort of explain what these campaigns entail on the global spectrum because really it it depends on the context. But as soon as tech companies became involved in this debate and have been concerned about their own image and they became increasingly more concerned about it and started interacting with governments, with policymakers, with the political elites, as well as with civil society actors, they saw an opportunity to also share responsibility with other stakeholders and see how they can also partner with them in developing alternative campaigns and see how they can respond to the issue of online propaganda without advocating for surveillance and and censorship, this would not be in their interest because it would also scare the the customers away, basically. So, yeah. 
Can you give us any examples of some of these campaigns and the impact that they've had? Yeah, so I was going to name the key institutions now that have been active in funding and supporting those campaigns. So ISD, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which is a think and do tank, has been very active, liaising with other civil society actors in different countries, in different regions, and for specific communities and target audience. They've been working closely with tech companies such as Facebook, through initiatives like the OCCI, which is the Online Civil Courage Initiative. These initiatives were bringing the money and the financial support from tech companies like Facebook to civil societies, actors, through the the expertise of the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. And so, yeah, trying to sort of promote these campaigns online and, and assess the reach and assess the potential success of those campaigns. I'll come back to that. But basically, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue also produces reports uh, to comment on the potential success of these of these campaigns. And so if you look at some of their publications, part of the first publications that they issued, some of them were about campaigns like Average Mohammed, so the nonprofit organization that develops those, those animations, you know, that are made available on YouTube. So that's one example of counter-natives that has been supported through ISD and for which there was sort of an assessment of potential success by ISD. Other campaigns that are more sort of really tailored to reach potential supporters of the far right, such as the Exit USA, those have also been assessed and studied by ISD. So, I mean, of course, there should be also other stakeholders involved. Academia is there also to sort of look at the potential success on the long run, the limitations of those methods and so on. And I think this is also what I'm trying to to do like looking at this from a critical perspective and you know like as a contribution to the field of critical terrorism studies but I mean of course policymakers have different approach to this depending on the context the role that governments could play you know in monitoring this relationship between tech companies the corporate sector on the one hand a civil society can be crucial depending on the context and we'll talk about something else maybe like I don't know how you want to bring that up but there's also the question of to what extent are civil society actors limited in the way that they approach those campaigns and they design them. That's also a key issue. Yeah, I'm really interested in the design of these strategies, especially linking online strategies and then what happens offline, because I question what the effect of a mediated strategy is when you're tackling issues that are embedded in society so deeply sometimes, you know. Mm -hmm. And there's the conversation about whether the, the tech companies should be partly held responsible I'm more of the belief that technology is a tool rather than the driving force, but obviously it has a huge part to play in it. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think about that? That's one of the issues I have with this whole question of is the money that is being invested in those campaigns, like, is it worth it? I personally think that more money should be invested in digital literacy because instead of actually feeding viewers with content, we want this to be reflected online. At the same time, if we actually provide them with the tools for critical thinking and the digital literacy to sort of consume, digest and process the content themselves, we are making them stronger in the ability to become in, engaged in the online debate and, and sort of decide for themselves. And I think that the problem is that in terms of how tech companies have been promoting their approach, saying, well, unlike governments, which basically this is what governments have been doing when they initially experimented with counter-narratives, they've been producing everything without really involving civil society and a broader range of stakeholders in this process, which has uh, described 
discredit them in a way and discredit those initial campaigns. And this is this is what they've learned from those failures. But what tech companies are saying in a way is, well, you know, it's not really our role to promote alternative narratives. This, this is not really our role. We're just there to ensure that everything that is provided to the to the consumers is sort of legal. We want to operate within a legal framework. This is why we're giving the tools to civil society to speak for itself. But in a way, as they are doing this, they're also avoiding their responsibility. And then I think that there's also a way for them to, as I said, regain their legitimacy and buy it from civil society. Because as we've seen in terms of how those campaigns have been assessed by the exact same actors that benefited from those campaigns in the first place, such as ISD, most of the time, those campaigns are assessed quantitatively and that the same tools that are used, you know, like in marketing practices to sort of really see what sorts of campaigns are being effective and so on are being applied in the case of counter narratives. And so you might ask, ask yourself, well, I mean, is this really relevant? Because you cannot really evaluate what's going to be the sort of long term effect of those campaigns. And if people would remember them, is this going to, in the end, antagonize people more than it would otherwise? Because they're sort of, they have to realize that they are alternative narratives to the ones that they're exposed to. But then does that comfort those who already have their own beliefs? Does that comfort them into their initial beliefs? So that's something that you you have to consider using more qualitative approach, long term approach, you have to assess the success of those campaigns on a much longer, in a much longer time frame. And I'm sure this is something that has been discussed already within this field, that it's worth combining online and offline approaches. I mean, this has been done to a certain extent. Some initiatives were also involving offline workshops with potential representative of the target groups and so on. But of course, it's much more cost effective to do it online. So that's part of the issue. Are we sort of forcing those civil society actors who could play a key role offline to shift their approach and sort of be more involved online. And also the same question applies to the fact that those initiatives are now labeled as counter-narratives, which means that it's part of the CDE agenda, countering violent extremism agenda. Whereas some of the root causes, one would argue of extremism, which in, in itself is a very broad and vague term, are social phenomena that tend to be disregarded and overlooked within the communities of practice countering violent extremism as it's usually labeled. So yeah, the people would have to, again, if you apply a critical approach to look at this, you, you'd have to keep this in mind. This so many questions about, you know, understanding the context of how things exist. And yeah, a quantitative approach is very limited because when you're trying to shape or change society, you you know, there's so many dynamics to consider and so many points of view to consider that it has to be qualitative, but it has to also be ongoing yes. as well. Yeah. Because part of the problem with social media, I would say, is that it's still new. There's no, there is a precedent, but it's existing in a different way to yeah, exactly. what it well, used to. That's, yes, that's exactly right. Well, actually, I, I give you an example because I'm just sort of uh, thinking about what you said. And I think, so I was speaking at Chatham Howe, for instance, um, in a panel that was considering the role that the private sector should play, right? And so the Facebook representative who is in charge of managing counter-narrative initiatives, Erin Saltman, was there. And so we had this discussion about the bubble effect. So the fact that in general, social media in the way that it is set up, tend to cultivate this environment of echo chambers where, you know, individuals tend to interact 
with people that share already their own views. And so I was sort of trying, I was trying to sort of get her to <laughs> look at the issue of counter narratives from the perspective of digital literacy, as I, you know, as I just suggested, and ask the question, is bubble effect in the first place is the way that social media is initially set up a potential cause? Because in a way, what is extremism? I mean, it can be so many things. There's a big issue in terms of actually conceptualizing this term, right? But the thing is, like, isn't it the fact that you are stuck within one limited belief system, if you will? So if you actually understand it sociologically in this term, does that mean that these echo chambers, filter bubbles, are actually part of the issue? And so I was trying to have this conversation with her, and what she said was, well, you know, there's been a lot of literature on filter bubbles, and as a matter of fact, if we try to confront people to different views and offering them alternative content, this might backlash into getting them to stick to their initial views. I found it really interesting that she made this remark and this comment about filter bubbles without considering the fact that it could be the same in the case of counter-narrative. And as you speak about filter bubbles and eco chambers, that's part of my next question. I want to understand how counter-narratives are, let's say, promoted and what's the strategy for gaining reach? Because the thing with hate speech or extremist views is that they elicit a very emotional response, right? And it almost doesn't matter if it's if it's based on fact or just arbitrary statements, but they're very emotional. They're the opinions and views of individuals. So it's quite dynamic and spontaneous. Yes. Whereas a strategy, let's say a campaign, takes time to put together. It might be responding to a specific thing. So perhaps it's a probably a slower process. So how do they ensure that, you know, the counter narratives are as dynamic, as spontaneous, and also able to even reach people and elicit responses while circumventing those eco chambers and filter bubbles that exist, right? Yes. Well, precisely, I think that what you're saying is is definitely part of the problem, because if you precisely look at some of the policy papers that have been issued on this question, there's a total lack of transparency on the way that those different groups are being targeted. And I think that ISD, to a certain extent, also like admits in some of those reports that it needs to be more research, that there's definitely a gap in the literature and that there needs to be more research on that. On the other hand, because the only way at the moment to really assess the success of those narratives and because of the fact that it, it has a potential of raising money for all of the stakeholders involved, for both think tanks, for research, for those civil society actors themselves, well, for those practitioners, there's a desire to demonstrate that they've done enough, that they've reached a high number of people. So again, then it remains quantitative. So sort of those practitioners sort of demonstrate their reach in terms of number of likes, number of followers, number of views, and so on. But the thing is that, so there is a lot in terms of demonstrating the expertise and the relevance of the expertise of the civil society actors themselves, you know, that, like showing that they do have a network, that they've been working within those communities, so they're, they're targeted communities for a long time, that they have already sort of an online network as well as an offline network. But then beyond that, we don't know any, and we need to hear more about the more critical aspect of it and hear more about the civil society actors themselves and what challenges they face when they actually design those campaigns and what's the actual proportion of their target group that gets effectively involved in those campaigns. So I think always with research and 
in development in general, the funding is always an interesting aspect. And I'm very interested in maybe you have some numbers or ideas of the cost of such campaigns and also maybe how much monetarily has gone into these campaigns already. And if the channels themselves are funding the strategies, is there no chance of bias within the strategies somehow? Mm -hmm. And what are the other funding channels for this type of work? Well, then that's very much linked to the previous question, because again, with regards to funding, there's an issue in terms of transparency. And so one of the key arguments that most of these stakeholders use is, well, we cannot be fully transparent when it comes to counter-narrative campaign, because sometimes it sort of defeats the whole purpose of the campaign to say openly that it's been funded to a certain extent that, let's say, maybe that 70% of the campaign was funded by the tech company that another part of the campaign was funded by a government and so on. This defeats the purpose because then we fall into the same trap as governments initially <laughs> fell into and uh, we lose the credit in the eyes of the target group. So if we want to insist on the question of transparency, I think we need to really identify the main stakeholder within society that can actually monitor this and guarantee that indeed the the money flows in a way that makes sense, that, that for instance, campaigns that have happen offline have as much resources as the campaigns that happen online that they get enough support and also the like other questions such as how are those proposals initially designed? Are civil society actors entirely free to run the campaign they want? Are there any sorts of restrictions related to the question of money? So yeah, that's the question. So depending on the on the context, who can play this role? Who can moderate this relationship? Is it really up to another think tank such as ISD to monitor that? And how are they monitoring it. So basically, we, we need to know and we we cannot, of course, we cannot know the, the details, but then there's a reflection to be, to introduce around this. Yeah, I just want to also touch on who gets to be involved in these strategies, right? Because as we spoke about before, the issues have specific contexts. If in different cultures, mm -hmm. extremism, as you said, is difficult to define. Yes. And even in the same culture, who gets to decide what is extreme or not? Because that also shifts, right, mm -hmm. depending on who has the power, you mm -hmm. know. I think also another difficulty is pinpointing the appropriate counter-narrative. Yes. So, yeah, who, how, how are these strategies applied at a national level? Let's say not just looking at Western countries. Yeah. And who is represented at the time of the strategizing and creation of the campaigns? And who is accountable at the end of the day? Well, there are different actors. And I, I would not say that necessarily they've been identified, you know, by ISD or the ones who basically like the institutions that are really well established in the field of CVN, counter-narratives and so on. There are different NGOs, civil society organizations that are active in different contexts in different countries and so on. And of course, like the relationship between those uh, organizations is often very political. And that's something that I think Kunani 
also talks about in his book. But it's very much about, you know, like who speaks uh, good English, who is well positioned, draft a, a proposal that speaks to their funders and shows, uses the same political language that is able to show that they're going to be part of their own agenda, that they can sometimes also shift their agenda, their own agenda to sort of meet the funders' priorities, right? In other fields, as you said, in, in general, when it comes to development and so on, the problem is to what extent are those civil society actors adjusting to align with the agenda that is initially established by the biggest think tank and players in this field and tech companies themselves. Well, I know more about sort of North Africa. And so in North Africa, for instance, organizations such as Search for Common Grounds have been uh, very good at actually working, collaborating with other powerful think tanks in the Gulf as well as uh, in Europe to sort of attract money and run some of those initiatives. These work on a broad range of issues. They, for instance, work in prisons and providing sort of an an expertise in terms of radicalization in, in prisons, you know, in North Africa. Through that particular scope, they were able to really position themselves and show to potential funders that they could do something around cancer narratives. But at the same time, they've also expanded their reach and they've been able to work uh, in sort of disadvantaged neighborhoods where they could identify a vulnerability to some of the what is considered to be the radical, uh, violent potential ideologies there. So yeah, when I was saying who is accountable, that is quite a difficult question, I suppose. But does there not need to be some sort of accountability for the messaging, for yes. the impact that it has? Yes. You, they might assume it, it's positive, but it might not be positive for everyone. I don't know, you know? I think you're absolutely right. The problem is that we're working with counter-narrative. And actually, what is the counter-narrative? What is the meaning? of it. There's a big debate now on why should it should we really call this counter-narrative because we only, those kind of narratives should then only be conceived in terms of countering the bad narrative. So it creates this sort of binary of the good narrative versus the bad narrative. And so some of the practitioners sort of initiated this uh, reflection around, well, should we start with alternative narrative as, a, as another option? But the thing is, ultimately, we, we're trying to expose people into a different discourse. That's what those initiatives are about. And it's if I was to really like challenge that, I could say that that's another form of propaganda, right? We are sort of challenging propaganda through propaganda, right? If we remember that in the way those ner- those initiatives are being funded, the money comes from Western governments, sometimes tech companies who are predominantly established, located in the West. Then that means that they would have some assumption around how extremism in general should be tackled. And at the same time, civil society actors that are located in other parts of the world would have to operate within an environment where there's potentially a different status quo, there are different dominant narratives that they already have to navigate. So, of course, we have to remember that these parameters are already limiting the activity and, and the kind of counter-discourse, if you will, or alternative discourse they could initiate. So, it's um, yeah, it's very difficult. And if on top of that, you add the fact that the, that the dynamics within this field are very political and those who get the money are not necessarily really the most deserving or, you know, relevant expert in this particular field, well, then what are you left with, right? 
But when you look at something critically, criticisms arise, sure. Overall, I see it in a very positive way because, Mm -hmm. as I said previously, this is new and it's existing in a new way. It's existing in a new space. So, of course, it's very interesting and quite exciting. And hopefully the potential is that it will shape things in a positive way. But apart from counter-narratives, you mentioned also digital literacy. I think that there's one aspect is that there are counter-narratives that exist in society and in the online space, even in environments that are the most restrictive. But, uh, and there are some very creative forms of, I guess, spontaneous counter-narratives, if you will, that are not necessarily led by civil society or, uh, organizations. You know, they come organically from the communities and sometimes they, they reach uh, a very big audience. Some of them become extremely popular. And so sometimes it's not necessarily about setting up a, a mechanism for those counter-narratives to be produced according to specific techniques and so on. But it's also about identifying those alternative voices in the online space and giving them some power, some supporting them, if you will. Yeah. And and then, of course, like this is not something that I talked about a lot, but it's true that within these communities of practitioners, some of them distinguish between, you know, when you want to prevent as opposed to when you actually want to reach out to people that have already been exposed to violent propaganda and so on. So, of course, then you might again ask yourself this question, you know, like, who's the most legitimate intermediary who should bias and produce these narratives? Who is the most credible voice there? But in the end, I also think that there are more organic voices out there. People that don't necessarily have institutional credit, they don't necessarily sometimes need the money. Sometimes it's not a matter of funding. But some people would be happy to just promote a vision of peace and interaction and, and dialogue and so on. But it's really about identifying those key actors. And then on top of that, there's, of course, the the question of digital literacy, which I think is, to me, at least personally, I, I see this as the key, really. But the question is, is it really in tech companies' interest to increase the level of digital literacy? Well, probably not. With digital literacy comes the understanding that there are different ways of engaging online and different ways of understanding information and verifying the sources of that information. You can create your own platforms, ways of communicating online. Yeah, so that's also what I think. And I think that it would be a good way to re-sort uh, of include and re-incorporate uh, governments within this debate. If we shift focus to the question of digital literacy, I think they would be willing to definitely. Yeah. I mean, not all governments, of course. <laughs> but in some countries, yeah, they would. They would be willing to invest in it. Including educational policies where from a young age, kids are learning to yeah. program, build things and just understand the digital sphere. Yes. Also, with digital literacy, it's empowering people to use digital tools and create their own content. Yeah, and I think that for some governments, also it would be, a, so this can be an asset in terms of developing opportunities for entrepreneurship in younger generations. Yeah, they can create their own culturally specific, relevant platforms, ways of engagement, and 
I guess it would make the digital landscape far more open, right? Yeah, definitely. So I think that there are countries that would see this as a as an opportunity for development. And yeah. Cool. Well, just to close, would you like to highlight any project or give any sort of last views about the topic? Honestly, like I think that there should be more sort of awareness about this. I mean, I don't think that a lot of people know beyond the community of practice within, as I said, like CVE, which I'm personally not part of, but I did conduct this ethnography as a researcher because, as I said, I, I really wanted to cr- contribute to an understanding of this, but from the perspective of critical terrorism studies. So the thing is that I think that really like beyond the very limited community of practice, there needs to be more awareness of, about this because I'm pretty sure that most of us have been exposed at some point to some form of counter narratives without even realizing that it was. As they say, yeah, that it could be that it sort of defeats the purpose. But I think for most of us, we need to think about it critically, whether it comes to counter narratives or to the violent narratives that we could be vulnerable to in the first place. And I think that that would precisely help introducing this debate around digital literacy, which to me is the key. Well, thank you so much, Dunia. Such like amazing insights and a great conversation. So you can discover more about this topic by accessing the following resources available in the show notes on our website. Follow Dunya on Twitter at Dunya Malhuli and learn about Average Muhammad, the movement countering violent jihadi extremist views on their website, averagemohammed.com. The article, Facebook, Google and Twitter combat online extremism with targeted videos on The Verge, questions whether counter-messaging actually deters radicalization and read the information pack on counter-speech labs by the Facebook organization, Online Civil Courage Initiative and get more in-depth information about the Online Civil Courage Initiative on their website. The study for the LIBE committee titled Countering Terrorist Narratives, Civil Liberties, Justice and Home Affairs provides an overview of approaches to countering terrorist narratives. And the House of Commons Home Affairs Committee report, Radicalization, the Counter-Narrative and Identifying the Tipping Point, is an inquiry on the UK's counter-terrorism strategy. Another report by the Commonwealth this time, titled Counter-Narratives for Countering Violent Extremism, explores the objectives and impacts of counter-narratives. And the Counter-Narrative Handbook from the Institute of Strategic Dialogue, the ISD, offers information on how counter-narratives can be a positive alternative to extremist propaganda. A second report from the Institute of Strategic Dialogue, titled The Impact of Counter-Narratives, gives insights from a year-long cross-platform study of counter-narrative curation targeting evaluation and impact and discover more about Against Violent Extremism, the organization which seeks to counter violent extremism on and offline and which counts Google Ideas as a partner. You can visit their website linked in the show notes. And if you'd like to give it a try, learn how to create and promote your own counter-narrative campaigns at counternarratives.com. So you can find us online at soascodingclub.com. Follow us on Facebook at SOAS Coding Club and on Twitter at SOAS Coding Club. We broadcast every two weeks, so tune in and discover what's to come in your global digital futures. (laughs) 